I've got into a habit in the last three or four years of doing the absolute minimum preparation for a talk. It's not easy even to describe what that minimum is because I feel that in the end it's just like learning to swim. You can learn it all by textbooks and you can know actually where you put your arms and legs when you learn to do the breaststroke. But when it actually comes to the point, there you are in the water. And the water is a naked element and has its own uh, particular habits and moods and seasons. And it may be cold and it may be hot and it may be stormy and it may not be. And you meet the situation as it comes. In other words, gradually I think all teaching out of the spiritual world as it now is has to be extremely improvised because everything's going so fast. It's not really possible therefore to plan in advance and one has to pick up the majority of what is said out of what people are actually wanting to hear and they may not even know what they want to hear until it starts so this again makes it a little bit difficult to know exactly from which point to start. I think it's probably fair to say that until this particular stage of Christianity there was a very distinct bias towards rejecting the earth as part of the experience of spiritual development and learning it might be well to illustrate that by its one of its more extreme forms which was that of the Cathar heresy of, of the 1200s where quite definitely the dualist teaching of that time was that the earth was created by the devil so there was not very much point in uh, trying to understand and make sense of and redeem the earth experience itself because it was put there simply as a test to um, oblige people to approach the spiritual world entirely through the inner light, through turning inwards through in fact rejecting that which, which the earth was offering um, and in no way would I be prepared to say that that was a wholly untrue statement it was partially true but from another point of view it totally rejected the whole thesis of Christianity which was the redemption of the earth that in fact as appeared in later occult Christianity the teaching was that it was the purpose of the Christ to make it possible for mankind utterly to transform the earth into the heavens that this total transformation process which you might describe as alchemical really in nature was what was embodied in the whole concept of sacrament that uh, what happened on the altar uh, during this, the sacrament however much it may have been intellectualized and formulated by perhaps more extreme aspects of the Catholic Church into some kind of very special uh, transubstantiation was actually the process by which the whole earth was going to be redeemed it wasn't just a matter of the bread and wine on the altar it was a matter of this and this that the whole thing was a question of the metamorphosis and transformation of matter into spirit it's there in a lot of fairy tales 
rumpled silk skin, weaving straw into gold, for which purpose you need to know the name of the elemental being who is in fact presiding over this. Rumpled silk skin, which you have to guess, is really the way in which you can come to realize the power of the name. Wizard of Earthsea, Ursula uh, Le Guin's marvellous book for children on magic. Can anybody not know it? Because if they don't know it, you should read it tomorrow. It's an absolute marvellous story of the power of the word, the power of the name. If you know the name of something, you have an inroad into it. And this naming process, uh, I, which is the essence of identifying the spirit in matter, uh, is an essential uh, stage towards this process of sacramental transformation of the whole of the earth into spirit. I started on this theme because of trying to get to a position of where we now stand in relationship to the process of the development of the Christ impulse from 2000 years ago to where we are now. Why is it so vital that this is a starting point for the marriage of heaven and earth? It's because we're trying with enormous difficulty to extricate ourselves from about 100 to 150 to 200 years of increasing materialism in thinking. We think the work of the devil. We actually do separate in the very way we think about the world the whole idea that spirit and matter are ultimately one. We, we do in our gradually increasing and hardening materialism fix the world that we perceive through our senses in a position where the Christ can't get at it. This is just mere plain ordinary matter. It's this we're trying to get away from when we develop spiritually, when we pray, when we, uh, when we strive upwards towards uh, some uh, picture or experience of the spiritual world. And it isn't so. It's the opposite of what is really so. One very essential aspect of trying to free ourselves from this magical obsession with the separateness and devil possession of even an innocent little thing like a table. One, one way of thinking about this is of course a philosophical one. It's probably not the easiest, but one can <coughs> go a, a purely philosophical path into understanding that this isn't true. And here we're blocked by Immanuel Kant, whom Rudolf Steiner spent the whole of the first part of his philosophy of freedom repudiating and utterly denying and proving that his this Kantian philosophical position which underlies the whole of modern science we may not realise it we take it so much for granted now but that he trained people throughout the time when he was teaching philosophically he trained people to accept that things were forever inaccessible to consciousness that the thing the object perceptible to our senses could nowhere ever be really got through to by that which we experience as, as an inner experience of soul. The thing had its own always eternally alien identity of its own and consciousness played no part in it except as the reflector of it. Ding and zich, he said. The thing in itself 
and what came through Steiner's early philosophical work he wasn't unique in this but he probably made more advance in it than everybody, anybody else at the end of the last century was to say that the process of observation and thinking was a process of dealing with two aspects of the same reality through two different sides of our organ our, our physical organ and that, the, the, that observation um, produced a certain thought that the thought itself was real not just a reflection of the observation it had its own entity could itself become the object of a further observation that that observation led to new thoughts that those thoughts were real you then could perceive those thoughts make them the subject of further observation what are we doing? until we've reached a point of a kind of archetype which is both observed and thought which he then described as the archetypal thought of the thing Goethe did the same Goethe too uh, had this experience that thinking was real it wasn't just a subjective comment on something that came at us from outside it actually happened and could be observed to happen that there was a certain thing we could do with our consciousness that could go into our inner life and learn to observe our thinking as it happened you see we take so much for granted we, so, since childhood we've always just naturally seen things and thought things so we never look at the process and one of the most important things we have to start to do in order to realise that, that the whole spiritual process is advancing like, like a big dipper that we're really on a big dipper of spiritual experience now is to learn quite calmly to look at what's going on and we've got the best chance in the world to do so now because it's all going so fast even a century ago, ago personal development and cosmic development outside us was so slow that we didn't notice it was happening it was like looking at a plant and you can't actually see it growing but you can jolly well see it growing now not the outer plant but the plant-like nature of our own inner life it changes from day to day most people are going through experiences of extraordinary unease because the world that they perceive inwardly seems to be have no stability on it it's changing at such a rate that you, you don't know what you're you're going to see in the newspapers tomorrow morning the world may be utterly different when you wake up tomorrow morning from what it was today I could go on like this for a long time but it won't get us to the point, point of really tying down some of the basic realities that are now here Supposing I were to say, for instance, that we have no longer any time left. We are no longer being left the opportunity to prepare ourselves quite slowly for the apocalypse. Because we're in it. It's happening now. And it's no longer possible and here really I, I, I mean, I, I'm saying this to we, we have a, 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 a Christian pastor in the room who is teaching out of the, the, the church as it's grown 
and he has theological training he has the Bible there and I believe that every Christian teacher whether he's a member uh, of a church or not is, is increasingly coming up against the situation what am I to do with this building what am I to do with this book that I read out of every Sunday morning because he's here now the Christ is actually now among us and the Bible is just a book and of course it was there and given us to prepare for this moment but what are you to do when the moment comes because it is here now and this thought has to be the fundamental thought that we start from we no longer have to go towards it from a prophetic spirit which was quite rightly begun as a process 2,000 years ago to, to reach the point we're now in we are there <laughs> the train's arrived now and it's all around us now how can we begin to experience this without doing what the um, the modern young person called blowing your mind we don't want to have our minds blown we want to keep an even keel we want to stay in we want to be able to steer alright we're on the big dipper but we don't want to be thrown off the edge of the thing we want somehow to arrive at a, a sort of state of mind and feeling where we can steer this in accelerating process of apocalypse um, without coming to grief and it's alright chaps it'll work <laughs> I mean, the, 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 whole, the whole process of spiritual teaching really becomes one of reassurance that in the middle of this, what could be a cataclysm, what could be the most appalling shock to our souls and spirits, because there suddenly, here we are, the, the, the virgins who may or may not have filled our lamps. Uh, here we are actually in that situation, and uh, there's no time, time's run out we're in eternity in that sense now certain things are happening in our inner lives which unless we are able to uh, make sense of them and cope with them are going to give us the extraordinary feeling that, we, that everything we had taken for granted as, uh, as a process has now stopped being a process and has become an instantaneous thing an instantaneous apocalyptic experience of the spirit which is going on all around us see I'm still going on doing what I was doing for the first ten minutes of this talk and I think it is really time to stop doing that because there are certain thoughts that are an enormous help and one of them is the thought of Michael and I think we can talk a little bit about the archangel Michael because he is there as he has always been there he's here rather as he's always been uh, he's been approaching for a very long time but he's now here and, uh, and with us and among us as a means of making it possible to reconcile the world of the last 2000 years with the world that we're now in the world of the second coming I've used that expression for the first time now and like all apocalyptic events in any period of history it turns out to be very different from what everybody thought it was going to be it's a change it's a change of consciousness 
but it's not an acceptable change of consciousness. We couldn't have made up any thoughts in advance about it. When it actually happens, it's quite different from what anyone could possibly have supposed. But chiefly because nothing appears to have happened here. The, the, the outer world appears to be just as it was before. Have you ever had the experience that perhaps you've been going along a, a valley um, between hills and there are mountains passing on each side and you have some inner experience of consciousness perhaps a moment of enlightenment you suddenly come to a thought you've not had before and you go into yourself and then you you come back to yourself, you find yourself out in the world again and you're still walking along the same lane and there are the same mountains and yet something's happened to them, they've changed in a way you can say it's not they who've changed, it's you but it's a different world actually you, you look at the mountains and well that's funny, they're the same but they're subtly different I've gone on a step in my own experience of life Wordsworth describes it quite often in his poetry the way in which you go to a place which you think you know all about and it's quite different it's the same place the trees are all in the same place the buildings are in the same place what's happened? well of course it's you that's changed your consciousness has changed you're in a different relationship to it this is how we, uh, uh, we are experiencing the world very often now it's the same world but it's not at the same time Michael is the being who has placed himself within our consciousness to make it possible to go through this time of history, spiritual history without trauma, without damage without really a kind of schizophrenia a kind of splitting of consciousness unable to cope with the intensity of the new inner world and at the same time recognizing that the outer world appears to be exactly what it was before in the Old Testament it is he who is referred to as the countenance of the Lord that expression the countenance of Christ occurs again in the New Testament I think Jonathan doesn't it and that countenance it's, it's a difficult concept it's almost as if we were being told at our stage if you actually were to look straight into the being of Christ if, if you confronted the being of the Christ head on the energies would be too powerful one couldn't quite cope so we need a stepping down of the energies which is still the loving face of the Christ but somehow transformed into something which in our terms is a little more human Christ is fully human but we aren't so we have to rise to that level our energies have to as it were come halfway to meet that Michael is the answer that the spiritual world gives to stepping down those energies so that when we look into the face of Christ we see an energy we see a countenance that we can bear the old picture of Michael was that of the slayer of the dragon and that itself was a bit of a misconception because Michael never has slain the dragon and in most of the classical pictures you see of him he's standing there not slaying him but with his foot on his neck and the sword point downwards there saying this is the limit within which you dragon can act 
we do not stop your actions because the actions of the dragon are an absolute necessary part of the world but it is necessary for the Christ force to keep the dragon force in balance so that the forces which are needed of the dragon deploy themselves and unwind themselves in a way that doesn't destroy the whole basis of existence because what is that dragon? read the the Norse myths, the Eddas and you get a description of what is called the Fenris wolf the Fenris wolf is the being who in the Norse myths was used for what the Zoroastrians called Ahriman the being who is there holding steady the actual lowest most God-abandoned part of the material creation he holds those forces steady and if those forces were not held steady we wouldn't need nuclear weapons the world would explode anyway scientists, physicists have described to us how the energies of the world unwind like a clock they talk about entropy entropy is the force by which slowly the energies that are inherent in matter dissipate and in doing so they produce the energies that run, run the processes of the world slowly these energies dissipate like a cooling process the whole universe cools down gradually step by step ultimately say the physicists we shall arrive at a universe in several million years which is at four degrees absolute where nothing is happening at all it's a non-event universe but in order that that process shall unwind in a usable form so that created beings like human beings can make use of these energies they need to unwind with a certain kind of a, of a governor they need, they, if, if they all unwound at once there wouldn't be a world left the whole thing would implode on itself but instead of that it's held in place now the Fenris wolf in the Scandinavian myths is described very interestingly it says that when he was bound when he was captured and bound which is a picture of the creation of external matter with atoms and molecules and so on in it each of the little elemental beings the gnomes and the andines and the sylphs and the salamanders were given one hair of this huge monstrous wolf being to hold and look after and each of them held one and since there were thousands and millions of them and thousands of millions of hairs holding one hair was all a particular elemental being had to do to bind the wolf for as long as, 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 as incarnate reality lasted and one day when the whole process was open, uh, over the, the, um, the, the wolf could be released and then his forces would no longer be distracted but meanwhile he was held there with his terrific powers only being released an atom at a time it's, it's like a wonderful mythological description of the whole atomic theory of course because that is precisely the situation of matter it is in fact beautifully held together in a number of totally independent yet interlocked whirling universes of atomic size the hairs of the Fenris wolf held there steadily Tolkien in his Lord of the Rings gives this wonderful description of this entity if you like the, the key to the whole of that atomic unwinding process suddenly being pinched by 
a being embodying the absolute essence of all desire, lust and selfishness a little being called Gollum anybody, anybody read the, the Lord of the Rings or not read the Lord of the Rings the Lord of the Rings is about Gollum and what has to happen to Gollum um, in order that the, the key to the explosion of the world the unwinding of the forces of the world at the right, at the right speeds is out of the hands of desire so it has to be put back into the earth uh, it's described as falling down into the creative fires of the castle of Sauron and uh, th- there it is once more safe because the function of the, of the ring that the Lord of the Rings is is the title of the book it's the function of that to be the guarantee that the world unwinds at the right speed and doesn't explode too soon it in fact it's the same as the description of the stone in the forehead of Lucifer which is said to have fallen from his head when he fell from heaven that, that's, that's Gollum's little precious the Lord of the Rings that's the ring that, that was so dangerous and it was, that was Tolkien's vision that, that uh, this power had to be restored to the world and made safe another way of describing Gollum's little precious is that it is in fact the stone in the head of the dragon upon which Michael is resting his feet holding it steady setting the parameters the limits within which it can work this is Michael then he is the one who guarantees that at this crucial time in spiritual history we can wake to the presence of the second coming of the Christ and not as it were be caught into the Lord of the Rings into the temptation of desire to seize the awakening results of our new opening clairvoyant perception of the second coming of the Christ from simply blowing our minds taking us over and presenting us with a temptation beyond our capacity to resist which is that of seizing it as Gollum did out of desire you might say also that that stone in the forehead of Lucifer was what is called the grail it's one aspect of what is called the grail it's the power half of the grail (coughs) and if that's all the grail was we would be in a very poor state but the grail has another aspect because the grail is also the cup of endless bounty the grail looks quite differently according to whether it's approached with love or with desire Gollum's little precious was the grail as approached with desire but the cornucopia the horn of plenty the door upon which you knock and it shall be opened unto you that grail is a grail seen through the eye of love and that was the grail that Parsifal found it's the grail that Amphortas guarded on the table in the temple because he himself Amphortas was another golem he was one who had approached the grail with desire and was given the task then of watching over it until Parsifal came along to release him from that 
we are all in the position of Parsifal because we are at the position now where we have to learn how to transform our picture of the grail as a grail of power to our picture of it as a grail of love we have to, to see that the whole of the power of the world the whole secret of the world is being now revealed to us and we have to know how to go through that experience without being tempted into into Gollum's, Gollum's sin the sin of, de of desire the sin of power and Michael is there also to make this possible for us because he can enable us to think the thoughts that actually made the world I in the first place and therefore um, to, to be able to perceive as the second coming of the Christ becomes more and more present in our consciousness um, to see it so clearly that we, that we can see the temptation of, of power and reject it and how do we do that? How did Parsifal do it? He failed to do it. You know the story, I'm sure, of Parsifal, the way in which um, he, was, he was going through a, a patch of mountainous countryside and he came to a lake and there he saw a man fishing in a boat and he asked the way to the Grail Castle he only met the man with the boat because it was necessary for him to ask that question secretly that man with the boat was the guardian of the grail and only he could possibly have answered Pascal's question and told him the castle of the grail is up there through that gap and when Pascal got there and arrived in the room where the grail was to be revealed he found the Fisher King already there in his place and Fortas lying desperately wounded in agony um, on a couch with the table in front of him to which the Grail would be brought and then a ceremony began a most mysterious ceremony various figures women their clothing absolutely meticulously described preceded the event the grail was brought in and laid on the table in front of Amfortas and then suddenly into the room came an incredible figure with a spear and the spear was dripping blood from the end of it and he came round the whole table in a great circle with the spear and he plunged the point of the spear right into the wound which Amfortas had in his groin here and it, so far from giving him further agony this was the only thing that relieved him of his eternal pain and the, then the sword was, spear was brought out dripping and the man disappeared and at that, um, and at that point Parsifal was led through into the room and something appeared to be being demanded of him all that was being demanded of him was a question he was supposed to ask a question but the poor chap had been brought up by his mum to ask no questions his mum used to say to him those who ask no questions get told no lies and don't you go, go putting yourself into situations which you can't handle 
And so he didn't ask the question. It was a perfectly simple question. And had he been just open to it, and a little more mature, he would have been able to realise what a simple question that was. All it was was, what's the matter, Amphortas? That's all he was supposed to say, but he was too much of a nincompoop to say it. And this is a picture of us. It's a picture of our condition of being unable at crucial moments to ask the simple straightforward question of where the light is for our next stage of spiritual experience the story of Pascal is a wonderful story of the, the, the thick stupidity of the human soul on the path towards the spirit and poor Anne Fortes then had to go around a whole new cycle of in, it, it's not described as reincarnation but clearly he has to go through another incarnation before um, before Parsifal comes back now having a lot of experiences under his belt having met not just a, a whole cycle of different aspects of the feminine principle 12 altogether I think it works out as and he's really been through the mill and um, comes back with a compassionate soul and is then able to ask Amphortes the crucial question what's the matter? And, pass, uh, and Fortas is able to answer the question and then he can take the <coughs> question one stage further whom does the grail serve? what is this grail for? who's it for? and uh, then Amphortas is able then to bring through this concept of the fact that this is, this is the bounty this is the ultimate bounty of God this is what serves the whole of humanity out of the divine in the um, probably Mallory isn't it but somewhere else in the Grail Saga as it's, as it's exposed in the West another question another answer is given and that is that the Grail and Arthur are one in other words the birth of the kingly human spirit and the bounty of the earth are actually finally to be seen as the same thing so that, that takes the whole thing much further so where's Michael brought us to now? where have we come to because the the realisation of the Christ being among us and of Michael being there literally to answer every question we can ask about the nature of that and the bringing of it down to a level where it can be um, experienced on a, in a human dimension raises the whole question now of the response of that in us which has been awaiting this apocalyptic event and of turning round to ourselves and looking to see out of what inner experience can we possibly respond to such an incredible and, un and really unexpected karma that we have to be on the earth now living here as the generation to which all this is happening our parents weren't in that generation and our grandparents certainly were not and for most of us they gave us no indication of how close these apocalyptic events were and most of us for about 90% of our time probably find it totally impossible to accept that this is actually happening now can it be happening to us we're just as ordinary as our parents were, as our grandparents, as our great-grandparents. 
and yet at a certain point as Christ himself said 2,000 years ago there comes the night where in, in, there comes the, the night where the thief does actually come the, the, the event is it, we've been so used like the Israelites were in expecting the Messiah that when the thing actually happens no it can't be so it can't possibly be so life is going on just as it was before it cannot be so we say our natural self wants to say everything in the sort of goes back into retreat and says well it, it, it watches a minute um, don't let's go overboard let's, let's look steadily at this is this really happening don't we want evidence or something doesn't science require proofs and so on all our natural defences and let's face it all our fears wish to defend against ourselves against the, the actual imminence of the divine when it appears and also we're all used from our childhood on to being presented with this in a more or less analogy sort of way no of course it isn't true that these things are actually happening but on a certain level one may say psychologically they're happening or yes this is a stage of development this consciousness has to be gone through as a stage of development but no be a bit careful about thinking that this is actually an outer event as well that this is an apocalyptic event that we can really open ourselves to in a way that we couldn't 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago consciousness has always accelerated every adolescent knows that, that you go through a period when suddenly everything goes much too fast to, to be uh, to be coped with it, but it's a little bit of a different matter when humanity as such reaches the end of its adolescence and suddenly one day we're 21 because that's what's happened to humanity during this time we've grown up very suddenly without, be, without it being at all expected and here we are in the middle of it so what in us is able to respond to that Rudolf Steiner said something extremely interesting about the second coming he said when the Christ came 2000 years ago fundamentally he came into the thinking of mankind this was made clear by what John the Baptist said was going to happen before the Christ appeared he used the Greek word metanoia my knowledge of Greek grammar is not quite enough to know what the imperative of the verb that comes from metanoia is but I think it's metanoien I think in the Greek testament does anybody know when he said repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand he used the verb metanoien the church later used the word repent because it didn't quite know what to make of a word which was change in a radical fashion the whole process of your thinking turn it upside down think out of a different experience from any experience of thinking you've ever had before because the kingdom of heaven is at hand it is actually upon us the 
the ultimate essence of the whole cosmos is about to appear in our midst in a recognisable form. So alter your whole thinking. You won't be able to cope if you don't. All right, you turn that into moralistic terms and it's repent, but it's a very inadequate word for what in fact he was asking people to do. The other crucial figure in this, John the Baptist before it, Paul after it. Paul, going along on his horse towards Damascus, full of high thoughts about how to get rid of this heretical sect, is suddenly kicked in the solar plexus by a force so great that it threw him off his horse. And there he was on the ground, being faced with, Why persecutest thou me, since this me that you're persecuting is in fact you? And for, forever afterwards, he had the experience, not I, but the Christ in me is the only meaning of the word I, that I can say. The word I is quite impossible for any human being to say from now on, unless that is what he is saying. Not I, but the Christ in me. The Christ is the I experience in me forevermore. Or otherwise, I can't even say the word I meaningfully evermore again. The destiny, with its infinite wisdom, chose for that experience a man whose main problem was self-identification. Educated Greek, member of the Sanhedrin, um, full of all the outward supports that was necessary to bolster a thoroughly inadequate, self-conscious, almost hysterical personality who simply could not cope really with self-identity except in this status way. And suddenly there he is with the whole carpet pulled from under him having to face the fact that in this inadequate personality he was being presented with the only possible meaning of self-identity which is self-identity of the Christ. That's what I mean by saying that this, was, that this came into the thinking. He was able thereafter to think the Christ and became the prototype for the whole of the teaching that made others afterwards able to do that. All the epistles lead in that direction, towards that experience. Now, says Rudolf Steiner, 2,000 years later comes this event, the second coming. This time, not into the thinking, because we've got beyond that but into the memory. Now that's a very mysterious thing to say, that the second coming of the Christ is into the memory. In what sense? That I start to remember the reality of the Christ? Really that? What in us actually does the remembering? Where is our mem memory really seated? It's really seated in the knowledge of the penetration of the Christ into the substance of the earth. The Christ didn't die from the earth, he died into it. That's the meaning of this is my body. He died into the earth and took it over as his manifest being. And until we were able to catch up with that by knowing the earth so well 
but we started to recognize him in it. We weren't ready for him to... It's really seated in the knowledge of the penetration of the Christ into the substance of the earth. Christ didn't die from the earth, he died into it. That's the meaning of this is my body. He died into the earth and took it over as his manifest being. And until we were able to catch up with that by knowing the earth so well that we started to recognize him in it, we weren't ready for him to come again. But when he comes again, as he now is coming again, we start to find this presence familiar. It's what our unconscious tells us that is so, that he is actually here in our environment. As always has been since he died last time, but now comes again into the realm where our thinking actually started to happen 2,000 years ago. It's the realm we call the etheric. It's the realm of the life forces. It's the realm he referred to himself as the clouds. I will come again in the clouds, he said. What clouds? It's, it's, it's clearly not simply these that you see looking out. It's the, it's the realm of that which, because it isn't distinctly visible to our senses, exists just behind our senses. A realm uh, of movement, not stillness. That stays still, that the etheric world is in constant movement. And in that realm he comes. And that's where our thinking actually takes place, and it's where our memories are. So he comes into a realm which we can start not now to be taught from here as, as, as a doctrine that comes into our thinking processes, but one we can start actually to recognize in that which is already familiar to us, which is the earth, which is the realm of the Holy Spirit, which is the realm of the mother. It's the mother principle, not the father principle. And it comes up to us from below. In other words, it is the grail. It's what the grail has always been. It's the, the door on which you knock. It's the eternal bounty. It's that which is given to us by God as our life, as that, as that which is given to us as the basis of our life. He indicated it in a very mysterious way by saying that when he came again, the earth would come up to meet him as the bride. She would be there to receive him. Which she? Well, in all the different religions of the world, perhaps there's one lot of people who would say, well, of course, it was Demeter that was meant, it was Persephone that was meant, it was the Sophia that was meant, it was Gaia that was meant, it was Isis that was meant. They would all say something different. They all had their own picture of this. Who do we say it is? We say it is Mary. That's our language. What would be the difference between Mary and Isis, Sophia, Demeter, Persephone, Gaia? The fact that like the Christ 2,000 years ago in Jesus, the bride now becomes individualized, as we are all becoming individualized. But in order to remember all that, 
it's not the male half of thinking that we're really dealing with it's the female half of recognition of memory of knowing the earth of knowing the earth because we are the earth because we know what it is to have babies that we know what it is to be near the processes of nourishment and nutrition it's a female thing to remember the Christ it's a male thing to be conscious of him and think him it's the turn of memory now so it's the turn of the feminine and it's not just women although of course it is mainly women but it is very much also the feminine in men it's the acceptance that the world is spiritually real it's the repudiation of the Cathar heresy that the world was made by the devil because essentially it wasn't its outer form was um, its, its rigidity that which made it possible like a kind of blueprint to have something firm to stand on that was created by the devil well done devil because that was necessary for the time being but that has to be redeemed and transformed into an acceptance of that reality that outer reality which is purely transformational and sacramental and it is that world of memory into which the bride Mary comes there are many aspects to Mary it was indicated to me not many years ago that in all probability there were just as many Marys as there were apostles there were twelve Marys the Mary picture has come down to us in a much more threefold way than that Mary the mother Mary Salome Mary Cleotas Mary Magdalene we have those figures um, all having different relationships to the Christ but essentially the adult one the grown up one the one we can make sense of as modern humanity and connected with modern woman is really the redeemed Magdalene she carries all the energies of the adult human woman of now she went through it all now one can say that there are all sorts of heretical and horrifying one-sided ways in which one can look at that and for instance there have been recent books written out of the feminist movement there was a book recently called The Wild Girl for instance which describes Mary as a redeemed prostitute and there is some sort of uh, historical basis for that but it's a very one-sided picture and it's a very aggressive picture and, and a very uh, woman's liberation movement picture if you like she's a, she's a green, green and common girl uh, and good luck to her for that but at the same time it's aggressive it's, it's not really female in a way it's a kind of substitute for real femininity in an aggressive male attitude which so much of the feminist movement is but the true Magdalene is I think very much identified with the awakening bride other, other heretical and uh, unacceptable versions of this have come out in such books as Holy Blood and Holy Grail for instance which some of you may have seen or read or heard about where it's described by the authors that Mary and Jesus were married Mary Magdalene and Jesus that they had a child it's taken down onto a level of such um, hard-edged, crude uh, one-sidedness that, that it, it approaches a kind of blasphemy 
but, it, but it's based, it, it underlying it, there is a real truth. That there is a real relationship between Mary's function now and, and her, her adult relationship to, to the Christ. One way of looking at it, I think, is to say that Mary Magdalene is the countenance of the Earth Mother in the same way as Michael is the countenance of Christ. It's a way in which these two beings can be seen as facing one another and of lovingly introducing in a form that we can find humanly imaginable and acceptable the wonderful dawning of the approach of the reincarnated Christ, the Christ reincarnating into the etheric, to the rising consciousness of the earth it's like a slow dawning approach a gentle marriage of earth and heaven coming now in this time and creating an astonishing stillness of soul within which we can live as a new soul space we're being offered a new dawning soul space within which to experience the approach of the second coming of the Christ at the same time as approaching and experiencing with ourselves our response to him as bride. We are all the bride of Christ in that sense. The feminine half of us, the anima half of us, comes up to meet this and within it a dawning new soul space appears from us, for us. This you can call the birth of a child between them. And I believe it to be so that that child is what has always been talked about in esoteric Christianity as Ioannes. A prototype for Ioannes was John the Divine himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. You see the pictures in the medieval pictures and in the later Renaissance pictures of John listening to what was going on in the heart of Jesus towards the end. In Leonardo's Last Supper he's a little bit removed away from him, but there are other paintings in which you see him with his head quite close to Jesus' breast and the feeling I have is that he is listening to something saying to him in 2000 years it is you who will be here as the human element not physically necessarily the personality but as the dawning consciousness of 20th century humanity trying to make sense on a soul level of these tremendous cosmic events it will be somewhere from which you can start to look at the second coming on a human level and experience it as an experience of soul and not just as shattering cosmic spiritual fact apocalypse. So Mary, John, Michael can be reference points for us to begin to approach this experience to meditate on it to live with it 
and then to arrive at our own thoughts about it. No man, no woman, has a prerogative in creating new imaginations of the second coming. Everybody has to experience that by looking within. So all I've been trying to give you is really my picture. You can take it as purely personal to me if you like. You may be able to reverberate to it to some extent, or fully. And then you have to go back into your own soul space and find out what this is to you. Shall we finish with the same meditation again? Yes.